Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Saltivation Podcast. Today, we are joined by Jared Walzak, Vice President of State Projects at the Tax Foundation. The Tax Foundation is the nation's leading independent tax policy 501c3 nonprofit. Its nonpartisan, trusted analysis of tax policies from federal, state, and local to global policy is a key resource for understanding what is happening with tax. Jared, thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. And of course, Saltivation's Judy Vorndran. Hello. Hello. <laughs> all right, Jared, as we were putting together all of what we wanted to talk to you about, the questions and topics kept coming, as you can see, kind of in our shout out to you. So we're going to dive right in, but we definitely won't be able to get to everything. But first, how did you make your way to the Tax Foundation? You know, some people come uh, to think tanks from other policy organizations for or for academia. Uh, I came a different route. I landed here after a number of years working in a state legislature. I met some people, some future tax foundation colleagues at a legislative conference, and they reached out. Easiest job application, job interview any, anywhere that I've ever had. They just asked me if I wanted a job. It was great. I wish all job searches were that easy. Uh, but, you know, I, I love the path that I had because while it's different than some people, it served me well. It's given me an appreciation of how legislators approach issues and consume information. You know, I've had a seat at the table in legislative negotiations. So now when I'm looking in on that on the other side, I think I have an appreciation for how that works that not everyone in the policy community has. And that you think why is they asked you to join? They must have sensed that about you. I'd like to think that. (laughs) Yeah, you don't usually just get an interview and a job (laughs) offer that quickly without having some skills. I'm just saying. Well, so then though, how did you, you know, so it's like backtracking state tax foundation, state legislator. How did you get to that state, the legislator in the first place? Uh, That was my first job out of college. Uh, I always knew that I wanted to work in um, policy and somewhere in the intersection of politics. And I had much more of a draw to state than to federal policy because you can immediately have an impact. Uh, You know, you work at the right place in state legislative functions and you're really having an impact on legislation that it can take some time on the Hill to get to. How did you know that as a young college grad? I mean, I've always been a political junkie for better or worse. I certainly had an appreciation for state legislatures for many years. And that's so funny. My son is like that. He's 33 and he, he wanted to be a, he wanted to be the president. He's not. I don't have that I'm just saying he was very politically oriented. So I remember thinking, what is wrong with you? I mean, I don't mean wrong with you. I mean, why? I think about myself all the time. I mean, he would read, I called him Alex P. Keaton when he was growing up. I mean, he wanted a suit when he turned 13. I'm like, who wants a suit when you're 13? My son. (laughs) Alex P. Keaton, why not? It happens. Yeah. (laughs) So then what have you been focusing on as part of the tax foundation? You know, obviously you're away from federal, you're focused, like you're in this state niche, but obviously there's, state is huge, right? There's at least you know, there's 50 of them plus DC. So what, you know, what do you focus a lot of your your efforts and your energy on? Uh, we are a team in many respects of generalists. We work on a wide range of issues on uh, state and local taxation. So there's not one single focus, but some areas that are clearly coming into focus uh, over the last year and into the next year. We're spending a lot of time uh, helping states understand uh, the taxation of remote work and how they can have a more uh, you know, taxpayer and remote work friendly regime. We've worked on a lot of conformity issues lately because we've had, seen some sea changes in yes. state taxation. You know, the Wayfair decision, the TCJA, the CARES Act, all of these has significant implications for state tax and yep. the latter two, the federal ones, uh, federal lawmakers weren't really thinking through those implications a great deal you know, for the states. So we've spent a lot of time working with policymakers on that. In addition to all of the normal work we do, we have a lot of publications. I'm sure we'll get into some of those. Yep. A lot of research we do uh, that helps guide policymakers. You know, we're always writing on a wide range of issues, whether it's digital, you know, digital advertising taxes or stock transfer taxes or you know the the, the old standbys. You know what it means to you know, change your income tax rates or you know what what some of the economic effects of you know some of the policies that are always on the table can be. So how big would you say is like the kind of state tax team within foundation just to kind of give like a high level overview of like, there's so much stuff that you can talk about. So how many people are like, you know, really running the, you know, running the ship 
and making sure we all know what we're doing as consumers of the data and the access and the information that you all put out. We are a small team. I'd like to think we punch way above our weight. I'm hiring right now um, to fill an open position that will be number five for our team. Um, where we also bring in some research assistants and some, um, you know, we always have interns and assistants, but we are basically a team of five people and we've been very effective as that. But of course, we're always looking to grow. So I think we have a lot of opportunities in the state tax space. As you say, there are a great many issues that we can be engaging in. And we spend a lot of time in the states, at least in normal years, you know, going and testifying and having meetings and working directly with lawmakers. And this all takes time in addition to resources. So we would love to be a much larger team, but we're very happy with what we've been able to accomplish as a team of this many. Well, I was to say the bigger the team, the more, I mean, the disjointed, you can be very tight. <laughs> I have a smaller team and we're tight and we cross collaborate and we're sharing information and we can disseminate best practices to one another and, and, and rally around our strengths. So I'm not sure sometimes bigger isn't better. But, you know, if you can be tactical and smart about how you approach, you can be just as efficient in my mind until you're just not. But also there's passion around it. Like you clearly have passion for the area. So you're motivated. It's not it's not a job if it's passion for you. Yeah, we, we have a team where we really like each other. We like working together. We love what we do. We love the relationships we have with lawmakers and with uh, policy organizations across the country. And you're absolutely right that you can get you know, big and institutional and not have that. Uh, but on the other hand, I think I did 24 presentations to groups in November and December alone. I wow. would love to have a few more people to yeah, be able to that's handle a lot. that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of say the same thing. We're small, but we're mighty. <laughs> you know, between all of us, we've got, you know, from a, from a, you know, saltivation perspective, you know, we've got over a hundred years of experience between the five of us, five and a half of us. So yeah, big, bigger isn't always better. So then kind of going back to what, you know, you had mentioned about, you know, pushing out research studies and whatnot. So the foundation does publish each year a number of, you know, studies and indices, including the state business tax climate index and taxes and growth model. In general, what is the found like where does the foundation gather the data for analysis and you know how is the foundation structured to cover all, you know, those 50 states? It is time-consuming work, I have to tell you. I mean, the index is um, essentially, it's a structural measure. We're looking at not the how much, but the how of uh, state taxes and revenue. So we are spending a lot of time looking through the statutes. There are now 125 variables, I believe, in the index. And we have to look at the statutory provisions surrounding those in each state every single year as we update the index. So it's very research intensive, but it's a valuable process because it provides that comparison of how well states are structuring their codes for uh, simplicity and growth and neutrality and all the things that I think most of us care about. And it becomes a great resource, not just for the rankings, which do get a lot of attention. You know, the media likes to say, hey, our state ranks here. And I think policymakers uh, sometimes you grab onto that. But all of those variables are in tables. We have appendices where a lawmaker who actually wants to improve the tax code can say, okay, on this provision, Here's how we do it. And oh, look, 42 other states do it differently, better. Maybe we could uh, do something with that. So we see it as a diagnostic tool. It is worth the effort because it's been a very effective diagnostic tool to help policymakers evaluate where their tax codes are. And then the taxes and growth model, um, that is run out of our federal team. There's actually a dedicated modeling team over there. Um, this is a uh, full, you know, an economic model that is able to look at basically, um, you know, the economic impact, you know, the GDP impact, the jobs impact, um, distributional effects of uh, any major tax change that you want to model. So we've done that with, say, the 2016 candidates' plans. We've done it with uh, President-elect Biden's plan, done it with, you know, all kinds of different policy proposals out there. In fact, we're putting out a new edition of what we call our options book, where we look at about 80 different tax proposals that have been discussed on the Hill, and we show what they would do for, you know, jobs, investment, uh, GDP, and distributions. How do you consume that data? I mean, even reviewing tax law changes without track changes, they're words. How do you know the words changed? How do you guys know that? A lot of research and a lot of time. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know what to tell you other than um, I get really. My so money you have like here's what it was, and here's track changes, and like that's how hard I, it is to see law changes. You have to look through all the history and go, okay, it said this tiny word change. They yes. made it a of instead of a you know an and, and now I'm like. Whoa, that totally changes the character of the language. 
it, you know, maybe this is where a legislative background comes in handy. I used to draft legislation. I used okay. to review it. I spend a lot of time in it. So, I mean, for the index in particular, it comes down to getting my money's worth out of our Westlaw subscription and drinking <laughs> way too much soda way at night, late at night. <laughs> Interesting. Because I was just, you know, even for me, I'll look at regulatory changes and then I'm like, what were changed? <laughs> so without track changes, I'm like, what? So then I go, screw it. I don't care. I'm just going to look at what it says now <laughs> and then go, this is what I think it's going to do when I provide testimony. So, yeah. wow. I mean, that's a mentality to be doing that. I, I find that very challenging as a practitioner to yeah. see, to, to manage the, the intent and what the language says. Because what I think happens to my mind when I am asked to speak to the legislators, I say, yeah, those words aren't going to get what you, you thought. You know, you're going to get this because people don't get this stuff. Yes. Even people like me, I'm a lawyer. I read law. I get it. But people who are lay people, they don't get law. Just tell me the practical effect of what this rule says. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I just wondered how you guys consume so much and you got it out so fast. Well, we do have to be quick on the draw on some of this. Actually, I was testifying in uh, Wyoming in late 2019, and I was testifying on a corporate income tax bill. They don't have a corporate income tax currently. And there was a substitute completely changing the entire bill drafted right before the committee hearing. It was not provided to anyone. I got there. I was ready for my hour of testimony based on the existing language, which was not supposed to change. And they said, we've got a new one and we don't have a copy for you yet. Oh, um, great. So the chair and members were reading out sections uh, to it. And I spent, ended up being like two and a half hours on the stand saying, well, the way that's written, I don't think it's going to interact properly with this provision in your existing code, or I think your sourcing rules are a little <laughs> different than how most states do. So we've sometimes have to do these things on the fly, but we've gotten pretty good at it. Oh my goodness. Now that is brain power. AI doesn't replace that, does it? Wow. Okay. I, I just, this is really interesting, Jared. I did not realize like how talented all you guys are. How much more talented than I thought you were. <laughs> Well, and what's interesting about that, too, is when you look at, you know, the legislation and the people who are elected officials writing these policies, they are not accounting people. They are not tax people. So they don't understand, per se, and I'm not talking crap about our legislators, but it's just they're that's not their area of expertise, but they're the ones that are assigned to put all of these things that all the, you know, the taxpayers and constituents have to follow. And so I would imagine then that's where you all come in and, you know, governments rely heavily on you all who are the tax experts and who understand the nits and nats of what all those words mean. Because in theory, yes, this is a great thing. Let's lower taxes, but let's have more money in the, you know, let's have more money, but it's like, eh, it doesn't really work that way. So yeah. you're there to kind of be that extra check, it appears. Well, it just feels like political points get pushed out and then they don't realize like our president, you know, tweets that uh, tweets a law change. And then how do you make that actually happen? I think people who don't understand the legislative process think it could just be done. It's that's not how it works. It, a tweet doesn't become a law. And so I think there's a disparity between the public perception of the, the, the adjudicative process, the legislative process that is really wildly missing unless you're sort of involved in it. And it's a, it's sort of a failing of our system of media to get that out to people properly because, you know, the Tax uh, Cuts and Jobs Act, you know, the whole state tax deduction. I mean, that was crushing to people. $10,000 limit? What kind of baloney is that when you have a 9% tax rate in many states? That's crazy to, to take away the entitlement that you were used to because you live in a high tax state. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't think people realize like what an impact that had on them personally. Certainly a big tax change. We talked a lot about that and what the implications were on both sides of that. Um, but, you know, I think that we're unique in our approach as an organization. You know, the list of national policy organizations in just about any policy area that has a dedicated state policy team is pretty short. But yes. I love it because, you know, speaking to the point that you raised, you know, state lawmakers, they're smart people, but they can't all be experts on every issue. In many right. cases, they're part time. They honestly usually do not have significant full time staff, or if they do, it's like a legislative assistant. I've been one. You know, it is not a huge policy research team that they have access to. So there's this enormous need for serious, but also digestible research and analysis. And I think yes. it makes a huge difference. And we can provide that. We can provide the 50 state you know, overview. We can provide the research, the best practices. We can come and deliver testimony or participate in meetings and have those conversations. And you can really have a huge impact 
I think even more than you can on the Hill, though our federal team does amazing work influencing policy discussions at the federal level, but so many state legislators are really in desperate need of the sort of information that we can provide. Yes. No, and it's been interesting that our task force, which is how we met, brought you in. And I thought, they knew to call the Tax Foundation. How do they know that? Um, so, because I didn't tell them to call you, I'll be honest. It was like, we're having Tax Foundation come speak. And I thought, oh, that's exciting that you got, you know, and a resource that I consume is being consumed by my legislative group. And I was very excited to see you come in and give deference and information to them that really opened their minds. And it's been, we have been, I mean, it's, I've been on this task force for four years and it's taken four years to make yep. very meaningful change. And we're here on the cusp of it. But it took a long time for people to understand. And now we have a whole new set of legislators on the task force. Great. Yes. Who have no idea what happened. So we're having to educate them. So we start all over with a fresh set. So interesting. Well, Judy, do you want to give just like a tiny, you know, 30,000 foot overview when you reference the task, the task force, you're referencing, you know, Colorado and then where Jared came in to, to kind of testify for any people who may not have, That's true. Who, yeah. who aren't up to date on our podcast. I know. Our, so our governors, our go we, we had a group of people that came together as a grassroots effort. Many small and medium and large businesses came together to say, we just have a problem with our system in Colorado. We have 71 home rules. We have one state. We have disparate licensing, different sales tax requirements, uh, taxability decisions. It's just all over the map. And people don't even understand who live here. So certainly people who don't live here selling to our citizens don't understand. So everybody came together. It was a public-private effort, and you know there was a task force appointed by our governor, represented by the cities, the counties, the state, uh, the CPA community, the legal community, and the legislative community. And it was a bipartisan Democrat-Republican, both both sides of each, uh, two from the Senate, two from our House, and we all came together to kind of look at our system and see if we could do a better job, so that it's. So the money gets in the system and it's easier for taxpayers. Bottom line, that was the, the end goal. And so I've been a part of that process. I've been strumming that drum for so 26 years. I've been doing business and everybody said it couldn't be done. And we are on the cusp of doing it, Jared. I mean, we are there. Every I think COVID didn't hurt, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I mean, every city's on board now because guess what? Main Street vendors aren't there anymore, maybe. I mean, a lot of businesses are suffering. Restaurants are providing the revenue, the local sales tax revenue they were bringing in before. We're not getting in in the travel community like we did. So they need yeah. the money. And you got to make it better for people to, you know, get that money to the government by not having to file 72 different returns. That's crazy. Yeah, especially with so, remote sellers uh, now and the, the, right? the reachability there. And, you know, you know, you look five or 10 years ago and you've got four states that are huge outliers. And uh, I think maybe even some constitutional issues with oh, sales taxes. You've got, yep. you know, Arizona, Colorado, Louisiana, and Alabama. Yep. Arizona fixed it. Yeah. Louisiana is getting very, very close. Know, There's still some exciting. issues, but we're working with them. They're getting very close. Yes. Uh, Colorado is making amazing progress. We'll still see about Alabama. We'll see about that. But we are seeing significant progress in uniformity and conformity in the administration collection um, of sales taxes. And it's very exciting. And it's got to make taxpayers happy. I mean, yeah. I my sense from being big four to regional firm was they just weren't going to do it. I mean, there was an attitude of we're, we throw our hands up, we can't do it. Big four, big four clients, Fortune 500, they're complying. So they're right. they're taking the burden of most of the compliance in America and the poor small business can't do it, refuses to do it. You know, it's, it's a push-pull. And so you're right. I mean, and I am certain, I remember telling our legislators when I got on the, you know, I said, Arizona, everyone's making more money. There's getting more money. Yeah. How is that not enough? Now, Constitution, nobody can think about money. It's not just about money and legislators things, but I'm thinking the money's got to drive this. Of course, I'm a businesswoman, so I'm like money drives decisions. But I thought you're going to all have more money, which means we can do a better job for our constituents. Like you said, local politics, state politics. Yeah. Yeah. So your testimony, I mean, cost and you guys like giving us basically an F as a state was sort of like... You guys have a problem. We're trying to put it delicately, but you kind of suck. <laughs> Your words, not mine, but certainly a lot of improvement. But you are so political about that. And I'm thinking, he's pretty much saying we suck. All right. Colorado is like the worst state. You know, I just remember you put very deferentially making these comments. I'm looking at like the bottom line is right there. That's a tough one. Like, I don't know if you feel like I want to get people to change, right? Like, how do you not become an advocate? 
That's the thing where I struggle. Can you tell? I'm not really restrained. I get like, <laughs> don't you get it? Change. But people don't want to do it. They can't do it. They have to move differently. How, how do you manage that? So I think we are in a good position in many respects. You know, there are some organizations that are advocacy organizations. Uh, they do not do a lot of original research or, um, you know, do a lot of analysis, but they advocate. Maybe they even lobby. Maybe they even mail things into legislators' districts. We don't do any of that. On the other side, you have some organizations that do amazing research, but it's white papers that often don't see the light of day, certainly don't get to lawmakers that are on commissions and committees like the ones you talk about. Yeah. And I think that we have found the right approach where we do education. I don't come in and say, you know, vote for or against that bill. It's not my responsibility. In fact, I can't do that. But yeah. what I can do is talk about the importance of different policies. I can talk about issues. So we are an organization where every person on my team is both an analyst and an outreach person. We don't divide those roles. I do research and then I come into states and I talk about that research with legislators in meetings and testimony. And everyone on my team does that. We communicate to the general public through media hits and through you know outreach we do directly. We do the work with legislators, with the business community, with anyone who wants to understand tax policy. And I think it puts us in a very good position that we can work with members on both sides of the aisle uh, because they know we're not going to score them. We're not going to do rankings or mailings. We're not, we don't do the political stuff. Uh, we're an honest broker. We obviously think that there are some things that are good tax policy and we're willing to say that. Uh, but we are a resource to anyone, wherever they may be, uh, to try to improve tax IQ and to provide the information that policymakers need to uh, work on tax policy issues. But you know you're right sometimes. <laughs> How do you resist? <laughs> I mean, from a personal perspective, like, how do you manage that? Like, knowing you've done all this research, you know it's well-founded, you know it's good thinking, it's supported by data, and then you got somebody who says, I don't care, I'm still going to do that. How do you manage that emotional constraint? The very first time that I ever testified on behalf of the Tax Foundation, I was thrown into the fire. It was like a month into the job. I agreed to testify in a state. And I remember the committee chair emailed and I was new to this. So I didn't know what this was like. And they said, would an hour be enough? And I was thinking, um, I would like less. Um, and, <laughs> and so I said, yes, an hour would be sufficient. And emailed back, we'll make it two hours just to make sure we have enough time. Uh, so I get there, I'm testifying. And one of the members who was actually the minority whip, I believe at the time, became um, majority leader shortly thereafter, but he asked me a question on sales taxes and we do not believe the business input should be in a sales tax because there's pyramiding that takes place. It's a retail yeah. tax imposed one time. And he knows this about us. He knows our research. He knows what we're talking about. He said, I know you don't believe business inputs should be in the sales tax, but I'm thinking about creating a parallel sales tax that's just business inputs. Would you help me design that right now? Like, um, Senator... No, um, I don't know how to handle it. I mean, it, we, so we, we definitely get some things where it's like, this is clearly a bad idea. Right. Why are you considering this? And we are willing to say that, but we, we take, I think we handle it tactfully. We, you know, talk about how it may be out of line with the general thinking on tax policy, with how other states handle an issue. We talk about the research on, you know, the economic effects or the compliance costs, uh, you know, there are a lot of different competing ideas in tax policy. And hey, there are things in tension where there are multiple good and desirable goals that conflict with each other and people need to decide that balance. And that's why we have elected officials. And that's but why- But do you get therapy and count coaching on how to manage yourself in these meetings? I mean, I you guys got put on the spot in what, what I've witnessed. And some of our legislators were kind of mean, I thought, and really hurtful to these people who are being- there voluntarily, maybe, right? Not even getting paid for to be there. You're just there because that's the what you do. But then, you know, kind of getting raked over the coals. Like, how, do you get some kind of socialization to say that's what you need to do so you can act appropriately? You know, I, I honestly don't think of it that way. I mean, a lot okay. of policymakers are very passionate about yeah. their positions and their beliefs. And I think passion can be a good thing. My goal uh -huh. is to be a dispassionate provider of information that hopefully they will evaluate. And I think that for the most part, lawmakers have responded very favorably to that. That doesn't mean that every one of them at the end of the day is going to agree with us. So that's the nature of things. But I have enjoyed the interactions with lawmakers. I have generally found them to be um, yeah, amicable individuals, at least during this. And yeah, you get, you get pointed questions, you get heated debate, but that's 
part of our system. And, you know, at a time right now where, you know, some of our system feels like it's falling apart a little, honestly, this is a normal part of it. You know, people being passionate about what they care about, lawmakers getting elected because they want to accomplish something. That's what it's supposed to be. And yeah, some of the questions I've you know, maybe wonder where it's coming from, why that's, you know, top of mind. But there are a lot of really good ones. And there are really probing questions uh, that lawmakers have that they want answers to. And I hope that I can provide good answers to those. Yeah, I felt I found that like the rules, like, okay, you have to ask the I can't remember who, what, our senator, or, or I think she was a House person. I don't even, this is how terrible I am. I don't know politics very well. And you have to put your thing on. It says, Madam Chair, may I ask a question, right? And then you, then you get to ask the question. Oh, my God. Like, that's I mean, was so inefficient. And I appreciate that you don't want everybody talking at once. And that's to, but, but all the extra stuff that goes in front of even saying something is kind of hilarious. May I speak now? Yes. Okay, <laughs> speak. I mean, it, there's. I guess that's probably a good, like a way to pause, right? And gather your thoughts and then deliver them. But just the order of things is fascinating. And I recognize that because they're getting a recording of the conversation and they want to know who's speaking, even though your voice might be transparent. Maybe not, don't know for sure. We want to know it's Jared speaking. And legislatures usually um, operate by Mason's Manual. It's kind of a Robert's Rule for legislatures. And often the other commissions use at least a modified version of that too. And yeah, I mean, it can be esoteric for some people, but I think it does promote some order in the conversation and the deliberation. So uh, on the whole, I'm for it and I'm used to it. And what I just have to respond to is every state does some things a little differently. So too, like how you're speaking, like I often ask this before, it's like, if I if a lawmaker asks me a question while I'm testifying, do I say, you know, yeah, Senator Jones, thank you. That's a good question. Or do I say through the chair to Senator Jones? Because yes. people care about those sort of yes. things. You need to we know. had to go through the chair. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I obviously I struggle with that. I don't think I would be good in your job. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever have like a, I told you so moment where like a state will input something where like, eh, we told you not to, and then they backtrack. Like what I'm thinking of is like Michigan, right? They had the single business tax and then they did the business tax with the gross receipts. And then they went back. Then now they're at like a traditional income tax and that business gross receipts thing lasted what, like two or three years. And you're just like, eh, I told you so. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so one example of that in Seattle, we had strongly urged consideration of some of the economic effects of uh, a business head tax. They adopted it, they quickly repealed it, and then a few years later they came back and adopted something else just about as ridiculous. It is Seattle after all, but you know, we, but they did roll it back because they realized that the effects were pretty much what we said the effects would be. Often I think we've been able to get policymakers to consider this before they go the full way. So in Missouri a couple of years ago, uh, there was a big push uh, by the governor and some legislators to adopt a gross receipts tax in lieu of the corporate income tax. And sure, no one likes corporate income taxes. No one likes paying any taxes, but they're a lot better than a gross receipts tax. And we spend a lot of time trying to, you know, are you policymakers out of going down a GRT route? Um, it was challenging when it's the governor's top issue. And I had some uh, very interesting conversations with, you know, his budget office and with you know, his chief of staff and others. But ultimately, we, I think, convinced policymakers that that was the wrong way to go. And instead of doing that, um, we helped to highlight some other options and some lawmakers who had wanted to do some other reforms jumped on this. And, you know, there's some legislators who already had bills ready to go. And instead of doing a GRT, they made significant reforms and rate cuts to the individual and corporate income tax, making them, you know, broader, but lower rate and better taxes. So we we fixed existing taxes rather than adding a new bad one. And yeah. I think there's a lot of examples like that where hopefully we stepped in before they went that route. But Right. But yeah. has Nevada called you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, ne- Nevada, obviously, we were um, very strong. We, we don't like gross receipts taxes. We think that they are, you know, a century out of date, that they're a, a bad form of taxation that's inequitable and bad for economic growth. Nevada was looking at a 2.5% gross receipts tax initially. And to put that in context... You know, Ohio doesn't have a corporate income tax. Instead, they have a 0.26% gross receipts tax. Nevada was looking at something almost 10 times what Ohio funds all of its business tax revenue out of. Uh, so this was enormous. And we spent a lot of time in the state talking about why this wasn't a great idea, talking about alternatives. Actually, one of the alternatives that we proposed was used to significantly curtail how large the tax 
is. The base rate of that tax is about maybe like one sixteenth of what was initially proposed. So not a victory. I would prefer they didn't have the tax at all. But I think that um, the research and analysis and testimony that we provided did have an impact on making that a much smaller tax than it could have been yeah. otherwise and push them towards some better options for revenue raising. And you know, there's discussions on both sides. There's people who want to raise the commerce tax. There's people who want to repeal it. I would hope at least that they don't raise it, but we continue to talk with Nevada about the better ways to generate well, and 26 or 24 layers of complexity to pick your- Absolutely. But I mean, I was just like, you've got to be flipping kidding me. I mean, Washington, I really feel like Washington's business and occupation tax survives because it's small enough that people just deal with it. It's just not enough to sue over. So well, you get enough people, it's like, I'm not gonna sue for $1,000 a tax or 4,000. It's yeah. at some point you're like, it's just not enough. So I'm, I'm mad about it, but I just deal with it. It's like, I throw my hands up. Yeah, I think there's a lot of taxes like that where everyone recognizes they're terribly, terribly structured, but if your burden's not that high, you just right. sort of live with it. You're but, not gonna be the one. But Washington, I mean, it can be high. It can be very high for some businesses, but mm -hmm. part of the trade-off, Washington's constitution, at least implicitly, prohibits income taxes. So in 1932, I believe, the Supreme Court on the same day said, no, you can't have an income tax you know, based on our constitution, and you can have a gross income tax on businesses. And they actually wrote, it's the weirdest opinion. It says, basically, we're not sure this is constitutional, but there's an emergency. We're in the Great Depression. We're going to allow it for right now, but this probably isn't constitutional and shouldn't last very long. So that was 1932. This is 2020. Um, <laughs> yeah, that 90 great. years later. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, the first sales tax was 1922. You know, and people don't even understand that. And we're almost 200 years from that. You know, like, I just think that has been an interesting experience for me just to see how people don't understand taxes. Yeah. I mean, and I'll tell you kind of what got me to know you guys, uh, however long ago, 10, 15 years ago, because I did not know you when I worked for the big four. Like I, you know, we, it just was a different animal. And most of my clients were saying, what state should I do business in? They were there, right? They're everywhere. Yeah. So, but when I, one of my couple of my clients would say, I need to know where to go do business. I don't want to do here at business anymore. The taxes are too wide. I thought, well, I have no idea what other states are doing. I found the tax foundations maps yeah. and I've been relying on them ever since because it's a way to see that snapshot of America and all the bits and pieces that you guys share. I love your money. I love the champagne map and the beer taxes map. Those are so cute. I mean, they're our, just such a heartwarming thing and they're fun, even though they're relevant to our spending. <laughs> our, our weekly maps are, I think, a very popular thing we do. You know, every yeah. Wednesday we put up a new map. Uh, we also have an email newsletter that every Friday gives a digest of all of our research. We always feature the map as people love the maps. Yeah. Uh, but to the location decisions, we have a study called Location Matters. We published it only twice, but we're reviving it this year. We published this really? spring. And this is a multiple firm study. So what that means is we take eight different types of industries and create okay. a model firm. And we put that firm in all 50 states. And we Ooh. look at what their tax liability can be in that state. Yeah. Um, all the incentives that they may or may not be able to take advantage of, um, all of the ways that the different taxes state and local level apply to them yep. so that we can break that down. And what you can do, you can see the non-neutrality across states, but also within because different firms uh, having different models of business have very different liabilities. And very we actually so. do it twice for each firm. We do them as a mature firm and as a new firm, as new firms Ooh. often get incentives. Um, yes. Mature firms usually don't get very many. So we can say, hey, your first couple of years, look, you'd be only paying good. this. But, but if you're going to be here for 30 years, well, this is what you're paying. There's your trap. Yo. Well, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I love Texas. There's no individual income tax, right? Their property taxes are up the wazoo. They, and their sales tax is very comprehensive. And I think people just don't even think about that. You know, they don't realize you're actually probably paying more taxes than you would in a Colorado or some other states because of what their structure is. But they just don't look at it that way, right? Yeah. Texas can still be a very good deal for a lot of businesses. Uh, you're right. Property taxes are quite high. Uh, sales taxes are sort of middle of the pack, but they're certainly mm -hmm. not low. Uh, but I think a lot of uh, employees and executives like the lack of an individual income tax. Yeah. Uh, their margins tax is not well structured, but it's you know <laughs> usually not very high for a lot uh -huh. of businesses, depending on the model. So it can be a good place for a lot yeah. of yeah. companies do business, but it's not the automatic choice that like, oh, let's right. just go to Texas. Correct. It's more complex than that.
Right. No. And that people look at the income tax. Everybody, yeah. I feel like it's hard to get income tax changes because everybody feels affected by it. But the sales taxes are incremental or property taxes. They creep up on you and they get you. Like, <laughs> you know, how, uh, what is it? Oregon just did their, they have a tax, the cat tax. Like, yes. oh, you got to yep. be kidding me. Right. And so it's like, that just crops up on you. Like they got you. Yeah, because yeah. they don't have a sales tax. So they're going to fund it somehow. And actually, there is more sales taxes than we think of in Oregon mm-hmm. on certain things. And then I was just in Montana last year, and Montana is not known for having a state-level sales tax, but there are local taxes there. There are resort taxes, resort uh-huh. areas, and I think there's like 32 of them can yeah. impose those taxes. And I thought, yeah. well, how's that going to deal with Wayfair, right? <laughs> and, you know, Alaska's putting all their you know, their count, their hundred and something counties are building together to say, we want to have local taxes collected for Wayfair, like purchase sales. I'm like, huh, interesting. So there's definitely taxes more than people think in our nation. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, and that's similar, like Judy, if you think about like the Denver ballot measure, there's almost always like of like in the city and county of Denver, like a funding, yep. a small sales tax increase for funding of schools or mm-hmm. whatever. Let's you know, increase the marijuana tax. Let's do all these things. And they always pass in the city and county of Denver. Yeah, we always, and I think ta- our, we always tax ourselves. <laughs> and and I think probably our sales tax rate has grown almost like a point and a half over the last like three or four years. And then for the first time in a while, you know, the state income tax rate, we voted to reduce it, which is just right. this weird kind of like dichotomy right. of like those. And, and it could potentially have to do with like the political, like kind of the political makeup of what the city and county of Denver is. Right. But like our property taxes and our sales taxes always go up in Denver. But then now for the first time in a while, we've, you know, reduced the, like the state rate. And our rate is so low anyway. (laughs) And there's clearly the distinction, you know, Denver versus the state as a whole. But I think also uh, there are differences in people's approach to taxes based on what they're paying for, or at least perceived as paying for. Uh, Mm -hmm. You look like Illinois, rejected a higher income tax and a graduate income tax. And that's a fairly progressive state. Colorado went for an income tax reduction. Arizona uh, adopted an income tax increase. And honestly, the biggest difference, I think, is that in Arizona, they said, this is going for schools. We're going to yes. pay teachers more. Yep. We're going to hire oh, more yeah. teachers. And there were a lot of people who said, yeah, I- I'd like to pay teachers more. For it. Um, yes. And you know, w- when you're tying a tax increase to something tangible, as opposed to just let's raise more money for government, especially if you might be running a surplus. Yep, yep. <laughs> It makes a big difference. Also, the types of taxes. You know, people actually, people hate property taxes. And economists hate this because economists think that real property taxes are good. Um, Uh But but people hate them. And part of it is philosophical. You know, I own this. Why am I paying taxes? But the other part of it is the transparency of it. People know what they paid in property tax. If I asked you what you pay in sales tax last year, you've got no clue. Or at least if you're no like clue. me, you've got no clue. So an incremental change, you don't feel that because it's a couple of pennies every time you buy something. Yeah. But the property tax you probably know pretty close to what you paid in property taxes and it's a big hit and transparency is good. We want transparency in taxes, but when this one tax is really transparent and a lot of the others aren't, people hate the transparent tax because they feel that burden. But they don't realize how much they pay in sales tax. In fact, my daughter and I went shopping for Christmas. It was very sad. The parking lot was very empty. The mall was marginally full. It was very interesting life experience given COVID, right? But I thought, well, we spent $50 in sales tax because we got a couple hundred dollars of gifts for people. And and I was like, well, well, we're contributing to the economy. And I, because I look at that on my receipts, right? Look at those taxes. So, but you're right. I don't think people pay attention to that. And yeah, that's a fascinating issue. And I I am so, so you, they say it's good to have property taxes. See, my issue is I'm fine paying a property tax. I just don't want you to up my value, right? I'll pay that I don't think it should be based on some future value when I'm owned my home for 20 years. Like I'm not paying a million dollars for it when I pay 200,000. That's crazy. That's the stuff I don't like. Cause at um, some point you're going to push people out of their homes because they can't it's, retire. It's, it's complex, you know, and there are states that have tried to avoid that uh, with assessment limitations. Yep. Uh, California was the first with Prop 13. Yep. Top 13. But, there, but there are challenges with this too, because you've got properties, you've got homes across the street from each other. They are, the same home essentially, but one was purchased 20 years ago. One was purchased yep. this year yep. and they are paying three times difference on their property taxes. Yeah, and sometimes that's decision. <laughs> and, and, it, and it may say, you know, if it changes, for instance, if the assessment finally changes, if you convert the property or um, improve it, then you're saying, well, you know what? Don't add a new room to your house because now your property taxes are going to triple. Uh, don't uh, don't downsize when you retire, which can create more property stock. Um, right. Yeah. You know, so there's actually all these 
you know, there are good ways, I think, to do property tax limitations, but uh, sometimes lawmakers want to address exactly the point you are addressing, but they create all these perverse incentives and they create problems. Um, also, um, some serious inequities that people have to think about. So I grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh, until a couple of years ago, there was a, a county that hadn't reassessed since the moon landing, which I feel was like a, a long time ago. Um, but <laughs> I think Monday you know, was a long time ago. But, you know, um, <laughs> yes, this is true, especially <laughs> in this era. So you had some huge disparities, but you also like Massachusetts had this issue and there was a court case and some jurisdictions in Pennsylvania have had this, like in Massachusetts, you had mansions that hadn't been assessed for decades. And then you sure. had low income property that had been assessed very recently and was often not only owned by low income individuals, but often minorities. And you had low income minorities paying less than frankly, Boston Brahmins in their mansions. And the courts eventually said, this is an equal protection issue. And I think they're right. Um, you know, so it's, it's a complex issue. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I get what you're saying about like, you haven't realized that value. Your property's worth more, but you're not necessarily getting anything more. Correct. There are good ways to do property tax limitations to try to address this. You can also do some some things to make sure that low fixed income individuals don't lose their homes. Right. You've got to be careful in the design because you can have unintended consequences. Right. Well, like rent uh, rent things in New York, like, like rent control. You really kind of had people, yeah. you know, just siphoning through the same space and just keeping the rent low, which wasn't really a fit. But everybody figures out a way to avoid taxes. <laughs> Speaking of which, what do you think about our Gallagher decision in Colorado? I think it was the right decision. And I also think it's actually, it's a bold decision for uh, voters to make because it's one of those rare situations where people are undoing a benefit for them. Right, especially a benefit mostly for us. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I was um, surprised we get, that went, got through. But, you know, yeah, for those who aren't aware of this, a uh, long time ago, Colorado essentially put some limitations on, put a ratio in place functionally for um, how much commercial property would contribute and property taxes and how much yep. residential would. And residential property values have risen much more dramatically than commercial. So that ratio mm -hmm. has kept meant, meaning more and more extreme differences in assessments. I think that initially, commercial property paid like a 30% premium. And a lot of states have some sort of ratio where that would not be unusual. It was getting up to like what, like a 500% premium and rising. And that's really okay. unrealistic. It's so that's where the despair, because I, I I don't really focus as much on property taxes, but I do know our property taxes are fairly low. I actually have some rental property and we bought in this area called, what's well, soon to be called, I think it's called Central Park now, but it was called Stapleton. That's a whole different issue about our, you know, that Kill Cook's plan, I guess, history. That was a condo, right? And it was more property tax than my primary residence. Because <laughs> yeah. it was a newer uh, development, you know, it was an old airport. They redeveloped it and they can have a higher tax ratio because of the way our laws work. And, and here's something a lot of policymakers don't realize. Now, some states account for this and they provide some sort of exclusion for rental properties. Yeah. But in a lot of states, uh, rental property is commercial property and street that way. And we all know that in practice, most, if not all of the property tax burden on rental property is borne by the renters themselves. A lot of renters are lower income than homeowners. And yet you have states that think they're doing, right. um, you know, average people a favor by yeah. making commercial property pay twice as much or three times as much. And it's the low-income renters who bear a lot of that burden. Absolutely. No, it's a very interesting dichotomy. I, I remember having a lot of consternation about Gallagher, mostly because it does benefit me as an individual homeowner. And I have this whole issue of paying higher property taxes as I age. I bought my house planning to die in it. So, I mean, maybe not in it, but you know what I'm saying. I So I'm like, when I retire, I don't want to have this giant property tax bill. Uh, so anyway, so that's just my own personal reasons. And I fight my assessment every year because I live in a unique property and they can't value it. So I'm always having a fight with our assessors. <laughs> well, and as we kind of kind of begin to wrap up, Jared, I want to kind of talk about where we may be going forward. And so, you know, just kind of with states reeling from COVID-19, drain on budgets, they're paying for a lot of stuff, you know, the income's not coming in. How do you see states changing tax policy to kind of fill some of those voids? Or do you see that or, or, or think that? There is some good news here. Uh, revenue losses are real, but they're not as significant as many had feared. And this is for a variety of reasons. One, income taxes usually decline substantially during a recession because the stock markets you know, have the bottom fall out and suddenly capital gains realizations disappear. I think in the Great Recession, we had a 71% decline in uh, capital gains realizations. This year, the stock market's up. 
it's kind of crazy, but yeah. you know, in 2020, stock markets were rising. Uh, so that helped stabilize a lot of income tax collections. Federal programs like the Paycheck Protection Program kept people in their job and kept them paying income taxes. Uh, things like the enhanced UI payments that the federal government provided for, that's taxable income. And even people who lost their jobs uh, continued, therefore, to have uh, fairly similar you know, taxable income to the states. So Whereas a lot of states were thinking that they would be seeing double-digit losses this year, a lot of them closed calendar 2020 with probably just low single digits, which is you know, usually your rainy day fund can cover that. That doesn't mean they're out of the woods. There is there are issues. April is going to be a tough revenue month. Uh, you know, we we know there's still a lot to do, um, but. Only a handful of states are finding themselves to be in a crisis right now. So there's some good news on that front. Nonetheless, most states have seen a decline, and they're going to be looking for a number of things. They're hoping, in some cases, for more federal aid, but they're also looking at um, you know, a variety of different tax options. Sometimes that's raising excise taxes a little. Sometimes that's uh, maybe curtailing some business incentives, which could be a good thing. Sometimes it's rate changes. What I worry about right now is we're seeing some um, really creative tax ideas. And in, in my line of work, creativity is usually not something we want to encourage. So we're seeing things that are, I think, economically and legally dubious, like wealth taxes or mark-to-market treatment of capital gains incomes, yeah, taxes on data, digital advertising, financial transaction taxes, curtailing net operating losses, uh, lots of things that are, I think, pretty damaging economically and are uh, going to be unhelpful for states in the long-term recovery. There are revenue options. You can modernize your sales tax base. You can look at those incentives. You can make sure your dedicated taxes like a gas tax are raising enough money to avoid the need to transfer money out of the general fund. But I'm telling states, don't rush into decisions that are going to reinforce the trends you're trying to combat. You look, for instance, at a state like uh, New York or California right now. They actually haven't seen that significant of revenue declines, but they're still very, very concerned. They're concerned mainly because they're projecting significant future losses because they fear some of the people who have temporarily relocated are not coming back, yep. particularly with the rise of remote work where you don't have to live in New York anymore or yeah. California anymore. So they're fearing that smaller revenue base they're, and they're contemplating what to do about that. And they're saying, maybe we'll impose some really significant tax increases on those who remain to offset the losses of the people who leave. And I'm saying, stop a second, because this is exactly the sort of thing that's going to drive out the highly mobile high earners that you're desperately trying to retain. Wealth taxes, right. stock transfer taxes, sky high income taxes. That's how you make those fears of out-migration induced revenue losses a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I think it's really important to take a cautious approach on these. Yeah, it is punish the punish the sayers. It's horrible. Well, and that's really interesting because we were having a catch up with one of our clients who's in, you know, software in the Bay Area. And, you know, they're just like filing all of these these um payroll registrations because a lot of people have left the Bay Area and they're going to like Texas and Missouri and like they're leaving that area to go move back home because of, you know, their tech. They can work remote, but they're relocating to a less you know, they're doing exactly what you said and relocating to somewhere else, right? They don't need to be there anymore. It's going to be a very interesting era in state tax because there's always been this element of what we call TBU competition. That people vote with their feet. They, you know, sometimes both businesses and individuals choose to live in places that are either you know, lower tax or lower business cost or lower cost of living and all of those things. But there's lots of trade-offs, right? You know, businesses need to be where the workforce is. Sometimes there's agglomeration effects. Um, there's a lot of friction. It's just hard to pick up and move. But now suddenly an individual employee who cares less about some of the amenities of a city and would rather live in a lower tax place will in many cases be able to say, hey, I'm leaving. I'm going there. I'll keep working in this job, but I'm going to Texas or Colorado or wherever they might like to be. Basically, whatever your factors are, they may not be tax, but whatever you care about in terms of where you live, suddenly that is disconnected from your job for a lot of people in a way that has never been true before. And it's going to be really fascinating to see how states compete on this and which states uh, react, I think, in you know, negative ways trying to claw everything back and which see it as an opportunity. Yeah, a lot of people are moving to remote areas. Our, um, like Summit County where Breckenridge and, and Vail and some of these, I don't think Vail Summit County. Well, anyway, all of our uh, mountain counties are are kicking rare on property. I mean, people have never wanted to buy more property. It's just crazy. And I think what I remember reading in just bits and pieces, a lot of wealthy people have second homes in the country. A lot of people sheltered in their second homes, right? They got out of Dodge. They didn't want to be in the city. All the things that they loved about city life was not accessible 
accessible anymore. You can't go get a coffee. You can't go out to eat. You can't do anything. So they got out. And so I, I do think you're going to see a mass migration mentality and it's a shift. And then I do think we're going to see a very different shift of like downtowns. Like we've had so much wonderful growth in our city in Denver and everybody wanted to be downtown because that's where everything's happening. Gosh, nothing's happening downtown. It's all boarded up. You know, and even DC had this beautiful infrastructure of community and restaurants, and it's just mm-hmm. such a scene. And I assume you're just seeing hardly anyone on the streets like you would normally see. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, some have sort of predicted this death of the cities, and I think that's greatly exaggerated. Cities yeah. have survived, you know, for millennia for good reasons. Yeah. People want to be there, but they don't have to look exactly the same, and yeah. they don't necessarily go back to exactly their previous population. There are plenty of people who live in cities because that's where their job is. And if mm-hmm. they could live somewhere else, they would. Yep. And cities are going to have to find ways to try to keep those people. And yeah. Yeah, I don't think doubling down on the least attractive elements of city life. Right. Uh, like really like high, high costs and high taxes and everything's more expensive. Well, or in even like living in a high rise. Like I don't really have a desire to be sharing a, an elevator with 400 of my closest peers. Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's just me. I, I live in a small house, so... <laughs> It's fine. So anyway, I guess what I want to do kind of just like a last question that kind of might wrap everything up. So in your job, what do you enjoy the most? You know, honestly, I love this job. I love almost all, all elements of it. I like the research. I like the writing. But mostly, I think I like spending time with policymakers, you know, in meetings and testimony, helping to educate on tax policy issues where our presence can make a real difference. We have a relationship with lawmakers that I think sets us apart from a lot of other organizations. Like I said, there's the advocacy groups. There's the, you know, pure ivory tower type organizations. We strike the right balance. We have the research and relationships. I, I love that. I miss, during this pandemic, the ability to actually spend a lot of time in state capitals, but we're trying to find ways to supplement it. I spend a lot of time on Zoom, you know, doing remote testimony, remote meetings, looking forward to actually doing more of it in person in the very near future. But I love that we have that immediacy and that impact that we can, you know, work on something and then take it to a lawmaker and say, hey, we can help you think through some really challenging issues. Architecturally, it's so fun to see the different cities in America. I mean, it's interesting how they've all grown up. And then that building represents something. Of course, our capital makes me think about our capital. Like it represents something of togetherness, of community, of, you know, taking care of each other. And it was sad to see our our federal capital decimated when all those buildings across our nation, they mean something. So you have the opportunity to walk in those doors, see how they all grew up because they're all a little different. Some have three domes, some have one dome, (laughs) you know, they're just set different parts of the city. That's a, I bet you that I would love that because I love architecture. It is. Well, Jared, this was a great conversation and we are so lucky and honored that you came on and you shared your story and your experience and your insight with us and the Tax Foundation. This has been Saltivation. I'm Meredith Smith. Until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented. Thank you.